So Exodus chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took, him, took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside her. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling against, struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Raul, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds, and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Well, as a culture, I think over the last 50 to 100 years, in many ways we've advanced technologically and we've become smarter with the advance of the internet and whatnot. But in some ways, I think that we've become a little bit dumber. I I don't have any children, but I can imagine having a hypothetical uh, question from a child. It says, so dad... How does this Bluetooth thing work? I mean, you have music in your phone, and then it's playing in a speaker across the room. So how does it get there? How does it move from your phone over to the speaker? Like, I don't, I don't know. It's through the air, through the waves. There, somehow it gets there. And there's all these things that are invisible to us, that are mysterious to us, that we might even use other, every day. Or what about Wi-Fi? I mean, it's always on. There's always Wi-Fi waves around. So how does it move through 
the air and how does pictures and videos and music, how does it go from the air and from wherever it is into your phone or computer? Or how are we able to talk on a cell phone to somebody across the face of the earth? And we can say, well, it goes through to a tower and that connects to another tower. But yeah, how does it connect? How does the voice travel and how does it do it so fast? Or how about electricity? I mean, you go to a wall, you plug it in, and how does it work? Unless you're an electrician, you probably don't understand how it works. We just plug it in. We don't think about it. There's many things like that we encounter every day that are invisible, mysterious to us, but we use them every day. And in this passage that we're looking at today, up to verse 22, we don't see any mention of God. God is invisible. God is mysterious. But though he is invisible, and though a lot of different things are happening in this passage, though he's not mentioned until verse 23, God is on the move. God is working his plan. He is creating his story. And he's preparing his deliverer so that his people might be delivered. He's preparing a deliverance by preparing a deliverer. That's often how God works. He could save just by himself, but he chooses to use people for his salvation. And throughout, throughout this passage, we see that God is preparing Moses to lead his people from slavery to freedom. So let's look at this story just a little bit and look at how God is preparing Moses before we go any further. We see first that Moses' parents were Levites. Levites were a priestly family. Many of them were priests involved in the temple rituals. So he had a religious background. Moses' mother, of course, was a Hebrew. And remember the decree that the Pharaoh had made that all the male babies would be thrown into the Nile. So she has Moses. She sees that he's healthy, sees that uh, he's a good child, so she wants to keep him. And so she hides him for three months. We don't know how that happened. How could she hide a newborn for three months? But she hides him for three months, and then when he gets three months old, she realizes she can't hide him anymore. So she devises a plan. She's going to put him into a basket and put him into the Nile River. Technically, this was following uh, the Pharaoh's decree. And when we look at this behavior, this, what she does here, it might be a little bit surprising, a little bit strange to us. But this actually was something that happened in a number of different contexts in the ancient Near East. There's a number of different ancient stories about a baby being put into the water and then being saved. Now, critical scholars might look at this and say, well, this story actually never happened because... There were other stories like this going around in that time frame. And so the author of Exodus simply copied the story. But though there were different stories that were going on, that just indicates that they had a framework. And so Moses' mother, when she hears about this decree and knows that she must throw the child into the Nile, she was probably familiar with these stories. There's one story about... uh, a woman who had 30 children in one year. How that's possible, I have no idea. But she had 30 children in one year. And she was ashamed of having 30 children in one year, so she put her children into the river and put them into baskets. And then it was said that as she did that, the gods found them and then they raised them. 
So Moses' mother, most likely, when she realizes that she must do something with Moses, she probably puts Moses into the river as one last-ditch effort, saying, maybe he'll be saved if I put him into a basket, into the river. So she does that. And in essence, she does find divine rescue. Miraculously, Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses, opens up the basket, and Moses is crying, and she has compassion on him. And uh, Moses' sister is following along to see what would happen. And the sister suggests, hey, I know a nurse who could help raise this child. A Hebrew nurse. Now that was significant because children during that time frame usually weren't weaned until about three years old. So it was necessary for a nurse to raise this child. And so in essence, what happens is Moses' mother is paid to raise her own child. And then after some time... After, we don't know exactly how long, she's brought, Moses is brought to Pharaoh's daughter, presented to her, and Moses becomes the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And then the Pharaoh's daughter names him Moses, which may mean to draw. Then we don't know exactly what happens. We're kind of transported to him being grown up. It's kind of, his childhood is kind of a mystery to us. They, in, St- in uh, Acts chapter 7, Stephen just gives a little bit about Moses' life. And he says, Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. So that's all we know. We know that he was mighty in his words and deeds. He was instructed by the Egyptians. Then he's an adult. Stephen tells us in Acts 7 that he's 40 years old. And he goes to visit his brethren, the Israelites. And, he visits, and when he visits, he sees an Egyptian that's beating a Hebrew. We don't know exactly why that was. We don't know for sure if the Egyptian was in the wrong, but we can assume from the context that he was. And we can assume that this was probably a pretty brutal beating. Remember back in chapter 1, we saw that as Israel kind of reproduced and became more strong, it said that, they, uh, that the Egyptians despised them. And so they were probably being treated very poorly, And the text says that Moses looked to the left and to the right. He looked around. He was looking around first to maybe see if anybody else was around. And he may have secondarily been looking around to see, is anybody else going to stop this? Is anyone else going to deliver this person? But no one is there. And so he takes matters into his own hands. And in this action, as he's doing that, he's siding with his own blood heritage rather than the heritage of his upbringing. And in that, he's siding with God's people rather than with the Egyptians. He's siding with the oppressed rather than with the oppressors. In Hebrews 11, the author of Hebrews interprets Moses' Moses' action this way. He says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the pleading pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth and the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So Moses sides with the people of God over the people of Egypt, with the oppressed rather than the oppressors, and then he he kills this Egyptian. But then the next day he comes out and he sees two Egyptians, his brethren, his blood, and he sees them fighting against one another. And he says to the one in the wrong, we don't know exactly how he knew that one was in the wrong, but he says the one, to the one who was in the wrong, why are you struggling against one another? Why are you struggling together? 
He says, who made you a judge over us, a prince over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptians? Now, not only does Moses find out here that his deed has become known, that someone actually must have seen him do this, but he also finds out that he's not going to have a home among the, the Israelites. See, he's an outsider to the Egyptians because they consider him a Hebrew. Now he's an outsider to the Hebrew because they consider him an Egyptian. He's, in essence, a man without a home. And so when he hears that Pharaoh has decreed that he would be put to death, he flees and, and flees to Midian. And as he goes to Midian, he goes to a well, presumably because he was thirsty. But wells are a place that are significant in the Scripture because they were a place where often people met spouses. Abraham's servant uh, meets uh, Isaac's wife at a well. Jacob meets Rachel at a well. And now in a roundabout way, Moses will meet his wife at a well. It says in the text that Moses encounters seven daughters of the priest of Midian. And these daughters have come out with their flocks and herds. And this would often be something that would take a long time, kind of tedious work. And they had drawn all the water for their animals. And yet these shepherds come along, presumably males, who had drove them away from the watering hole. And it says in the text that Moses stood up and he defended these seven daughters of the priests of Midian. And so they were able to drink and then they go home. And they get home earlier than the father expected. Now it's interesting that, they got, that, that the father expected them to be later. Because perhaps what had happened was that the shepherds often oppressed them. That the shepherds often would push them from the watering hole. That the shepherds had priority. And so this had happened so much that they, the father had kind of accepted that and accepted that they would always be late. But they said this man, this Egyptian man, he came and he rose up for us. He defeated, he, he drove away these shepherds. And this father, kind of humorously, he's like... Well, Where is he? Why have you left this man? Bring him here so he might eat some bread with us. And so they bring him, bring Moses to the father. And the father gives Moses Zipporah to be his wife. And now it seems like finally Moses has found acceptance. He's finally found a home. He has a child that names him Gershom, which means sojourner. He says, because I was a sojourner in this land. And implying, now I've found a home. And I would suggest that these people that Moses found a home with were people who feared God. He's described as a priest, and this priest had seven daughters, which is the number of completion. In this passage, the father is described as being Raul, which is interesting because later in the book of Genesis, he's described as being Jethro. Now, why would he just be described as being Raul in this passage? I think that it was most likely that he's described as being Raul in this passage to describe what kind of a person he was. Because the name Raul most likely means friend of God or kinsman of God. And so Moses leaves Egypt and he finds a people for himself. He finds himself with the priest of Midian, the friend of God. And during this time, God is going to prepare him for the task that he's called him to. And during this time, God is going to meet with him in a special way, as we'll see in the next chapter. 
So that's what God is doing in preparing Moses to deliver the people. But then if we zoom back a little bit from that and zoom back from Moses' story, we see what's happening back in Egypt. It says that the Pharaoh of Egypt has died, but the people are being oppressed. And it says that they're groaning. They're crying out for help, from their, for rescue from their slavery. The people are, being, are in agony, being oppressed, being mistreated. Now, we'd like to think that they're crying out to God. Now, that might have been the case, but we don't know that for sure. But it says in the text that their cry reached the ears of God. Their cry went forward to God. And it says that God remembered the covenant that he had made with their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God made a covenant with the people of of Israel that he would be their God. That he would lead them to a promised land, to land, to the land of Canaan. That they would become a great nation. That through them all the nations of the world would be blessed. So God sees their suffering and he says, I remember my covenant. I'm going to be faithful to them. And then we see a phrase that I think is pretty remarkable. And this phrase that sticks out to me the most in this chapter. It says, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God saw the people of Israel. The suffering that they went through, that they were going through, it wasn't hidden from him. Their suffering wasn't something that caught God by surprise. It wasn't a deterrence to his plan. He saw their their pain and their suffering. And it says God knew. Now this word for know can mean a number of different things. It can mean simply knowing a fact. But it also can indicate a personal knowledge. It's even used in the context of a marriage relationship to indicate intercourse. It indicates a personal knowledge. When somebody says to you, So have you met so-and-so? And you might respond and say, yes, I know know him. And in fact, he or she is one of my closest friends. It's not simply that you know of that person. It's that you have a personal relationship with that person. And God is, in essence, saying that here. He's saying, I know them. They are my people. Their plot is not hidden from me. I see them and I know them. And I'm here to answer their cries. But remember, God isn't even mentioned up to verse 22. But God is setting up a plan to rescue His people. Throughout all these years, as it seems like nothing is happening, God is preparing His deliverer to bring deliverance. He's preparing Moses to bring the people of Israel from slavery to freedom. And this is before they even cry out to Him. Before they even know that they need Him. See, God knows what we need before we even cry out to Him. God knows what we need before we even cry out to Him. And that's not something that we see just in this passage, but something that we see throughout Scripture. Romans 5, 7-8 says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still apart from Him, while we were not seeking Him in any way, God sent His Son, Jesus, to die on the cross for our sins. Before we would even call out to Him for help, He took the first move. 
Ephesians 1, 3 to 6 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before we were ever born, God knew what was going to happen. He knew that we were going to sin. He knew that we were going to fall into that. We knew that we, he knew that we were going to go our own way. And yet he set in motion a plan of redemption. A plan that so that when we would cry out to him, he would be ready to answer. So that he would be ready to save us and forgive us for our sins. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. He's the one who took the initiative before we ever did anything to seek him. He sought us so that we might experience freedom, so that we might experience hope. But this applies not just to salvation, but it applies to all of the Christian life. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has set up our lives in such a way so that he's prepared good works for us so that we could walk in them. So he's prepared the things in our life that we should be investing our time and energy in. He's arranged the circumstances in our life to bring him glory and to, for our good. Rabbi Zacharias tells a story about when he went to India. Um, and he went to this village that made these things called saris. Um, and you can see a picture here of the sari on the screen. Um, they're very beautiful uh, articles of clothing. They're kind of worn as, as dresses uh, in India. And so as he went to this particular village, he expected to see these kind of you know, big factories, these complex designs... Uh, this kind of technological marvel as they would make these beautiful saris. But he, what he found was quite different. He found a father and a son working together. The father sat above the son on a platform two or three feet higher than the son, surrounded by several spools of thread, some dark, some shiny. And the son would just do one thing. At the nod of his father, he would move the shuttle from one side to the other and then back again. The father would gather some threads in his fingers, nod once more, the son would move the shuttle again and again and again, hundreds and hundreds of times. Over hours and days, you'd see a beautiful pattern that was emerging. But all the son had to do was move the shuttle back and forth. God is working His plan through our lives. He has a beautiful plan for our lives. And He's the one who's designed it. He's the one who's the architect. And all we need to do is move the shuttle back and forth. That when He speaks, we need to listen. When He speaks, we need to obey. We might not see the beauty in the moment. One single thread is not beautiful in and of itself. But as it comes together, we see the glory of what He's done. He sees us in our situations. He sees us when we're hurting. He sees us 
when we're struggling. And as believers, we can have confidence that God is with us and that God knows us. When we're lonely, when we're weary, we're not strangers to Him. Our situations, our circumstances, they don't catch God by surprise. Through all those things, He's working His plan that's invisible, mysterious, but always good. Francis Chan shares a story uh, in his book, Crazy Love, about a man and his wife named David Phillips, uh, who's, and his wife was named Lynn. And many years ago, they felt a calling in their life to help those who were suffering. And initially, they were hesitant to do so because uh, this man, David, was very introverted, very shy, and he was afraid that he had, would have to talk in front of people. So he didn't want to go forward with this initially. But after some time of praying and seeking the Lord, he kind of pushed past his fears and decided he was going to try to help those who were suffering. He started an organization called the Children's Hunger Fund out of his garage. Six weeks, six weeks after it was started, he got a call from a cancer institute in Honduras. And they asked him for a certain drug that seven children in that facility needed. And if they didn't receive that drug, they were going to surely die. He wrote, David wrote down the name of the drug and he said, I have no idea how I'm going to get this drug. But before they hung up the phone, they just spent some time praying and asking the Lord to provide this drug. As David hung up the phone, before he even let go of the receiver, the phone rang again. And it was a pharmaceutical company in New Jersey asking Dave if he would have any use for 48,000 vials of that very drug that they needed. Not only did they offer him this drug that was worth about $8 million, but they offered to airlift it to anywhere in the world. Within 48 hours, this treatment center in Honduras had the drug, as well as 20 other locations throughout the world. As he saw the confirmation of God. He saw the confirmation of God on his ministry. And years and years after that, God continued to provide. So that today they've distributed more than $950 million in food and other relief to more than 10 million kids in 70 countries and 32 states. God had a plan. This, this man feels called by God to start this ministry. He sees a need Somebody reaches out to him with a need. How is he going to do that? How is he going to provide this cancer drug that's worth millions of dollars? But God had a plan. God was working behind the scenes. He was working in the hearts of that pharmaceutical company. He was working to work out all the details so that he would be able to provide this need for the children who needed it. And in the same way, God works out the details of our lives. He works in invisible, mysterious ways. But He's working for our good and for His glory. And He knows what we need before we even cry out to Him. And as believers, we can have the confidence that when we do cry out to Him, when we bring our request to Him, He sees us and He knows us and loves us. Let's pray. God, we thank You that You didn't leave us to our own initiative. We thank You that You stepped out. You took the first step to reach us, to rescue us, to bring us from slavery to freedom. 
We thank you that you see us, that nothing in our lives is a surprise to you, that while it might seem horrible and terrible to us, that you see it and that you'll use it for your glory, even though it might be a terrible thing. And we thank you that you know us, that you have a personal relationship for those, with us, those of us who are believers, that we can call on you whenever we're in need, and that we can have the confidence that when we do that, you already have the answer in mind. You're already working out the details of what we need. God, we thank you for the greatness of who you are. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.